Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and forgotten American taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house on Wednesday, February 12th for another another town hall meeting on what matters to our towns, our communities, our neighborhoods. We could talk about the Democrats all day and their broken primary system and their broken party. Or we could discuss how to fix our supposed broken party, although I do consider myself an independent conservative, um, but we don't have a conservative party. How do we capitalize on the Democrat chaos to actually get a bold alternative and not just win an election, but win a cultural civilization war and actually do the right things after the election rather than focusing on the next midterm and then the next election, the next election to no avail. But there is one thing I do want to talk about before we get to our special guest about New Hampshire that I think is very important. And of course, it's going to be the only point that is not discussed by other conservative media because naturally, if it's important, they don't give a darn. And that is this. You see a very peculiar dichotomy from the results last night and really put together with Iowa. On the one hand, the Democrats are on their way to having an avowed socialist anarchist become their standard bearer and become the presidential nominee. But on the, on the other hand, if you notice very interestingly, Bernie Sanders only got about a quarter of the vote. You put that together with the other open socialist, Elizabeth Warren, it's about a third of the Democrat electorate. And you look at the other two thirds, and most of them voted for candidates that we know are the same thing really deep down, but certainly the image they give off and the likely perception from the voters, especially the suburban New Hampshire voters who voted for people like Amy Klobuchar, they don't want this stuff. And they're looking for something different. They're looking for something out of the box that speaks to them. What conservatives should care about is not about the horse race of the Democrat primary, but about how to appeal to those voters, how to create a party that could capitalize on this gulf where on the one hand, the voters, even a majority of the Democrat primary voters, aren't where Twitter and MSNBC are. But on the other hand, that party is going to be stuck with a communist who is their standard bearer. They're going to want to leave in droves. There's that opportunity for a UK-style Jeremy Corbyn election where Trump can not only get reelected and Republicans could take back the House, they could win governorships, state legislatures. But once we're doing that, why not win it with the right candidates in Republican primaries and the right message? And a message that will actually do some good for the country rather than winning an election as an end to itself. You talk about New Hampshire, and a very interesting issue comes to mind, an issue we've talked about a lot the last year and a half, an issue that sits at the nexus of what is important to our communities, our safety, our families, the core job of government, our sovereignty, public safety, and that is the polydrug crisis. 
that is killing more people than one could imagine, 70,000 a year. And I actually reported on a study that was given to me by our next guest that really the death toll, when you account for all of the consequences of the drugs, is really about 150,000 a year. Almost as much or as many people who die from strokes. And one of the most evil, and I will say evil things, our government at a federal and state level has done the last number of years is misdiagnose this crisis. And it's created a double whammy for so many people. A crisis that is rooted in drug trafficking, in open borders, particularly in sanctuary cities that harbor other countries' criminals who are primarily driving the drug trafficking. Creating a scenario where the supplies are spiking, prices are cheaper than ever, and anyone's son or daughter in their teens, young 20s, could get a hold of the most lethal drugs for cheap. This is no longer your grandparents, your parents' drug crisis. The last five to seven years, what we've seen is chemical warfare against our children. And government, rather than dealing with that, stepped on the gas pedal of open borders, of sanctuaries. And at the same time, cut off pain medicine and regulated every aspect of the doctor-patient relationship as it relates to post-surgery pain, chronic stable uh, stable chronic pain patients. And now they're caught with a reality where they can't get the pain medication they need. But on the other hand, the illicit market is more ubiquitous and cheaper than ever before. And under the guise of solving a misdiagnosed, misnamed opioid crisis, they went ahead and caused the crisis by driving some people into that illicit market, particularly young people. This is the nexus of healthcare, drugs, crime, illegal immigration, transnational gangs, cartels. Imagine if Republicans had a vision for this. Coming back to New Hampshire, I said this before, I'll say it again. I had a friend of mine who did door knocking for Ted Cruz's campaign in 2015. And back then, no one knew what was going on because this whole thing evolved. And now we know why it evolved and what happened. But they wanted to talk about Cruz's tax plan, getting rid of the Iran deal, Obamacare, things like that. And in suburban areas in New Hampshire, the very sorts of voters Republicans are bleeding All they wanted to talk about was the drug crisis. Because whereas in the past, you've had, you know, it was kind of a low-class thing. Just people in back alleys, um, people from upstanding families, for the most part, didn't didn't get involved in this. Because of the evolution of it, no matter how well you raise your kids, so many people in all of our communities are losing kids to this. It's something we can't ignore. And it's certainly something we can't misdiagnose. Again, this is chemical warfare. It's not something I could say, look, 
I'm sure as heck never taking that stuff. I don't care. You know what? I got three boys. And kids at some point do something stupid. But now with the poisoning, they make one mistake getting with the wrong crowd one day. Even even in private school. This is happening everywhere. They could wind up dead. Imagine if we had a party that spoke to this injustice. Where government is lying to us about the cause and the solution of this crisis, the nature of this crisis. Because if they told the truth, it would implicate two sacred cows. Number one, the illegal immigration agenda. And number two, so-called criminal justice deform. Letting out drug traffickers from prison during the worst drug crisis imaginable. Both these things started around the same time. This crisis, we've always had drugs, but nothing like this. It kicked into high gear from 2013 to 2015, right around that era. With us today is a forgotten American. An American they only hear on a show like this. You see, during the Super Bowl, the president had an opportunity to speak for that forgotten angel mom. He had an opportunity to take a captive audience and run an ad with people who lost kids to illegal aliens, to illegal alien drug trafficking, and promised to clamp down on borders, sanctuary cities, and drug trafficking. Instead, there was an ad championing one of the biggest cocaine traffickers in the history of Tennessee and how she was in unjustly sentenced. She was the victim. She is the angel. The victim is, is the criminal and the criminal is the victim. Victims are criminalized. Their pain medication is taken away. They're treated like drug addicts while drug traffickers are celebrated by the very president who promised to change this. And again, just last week in New, in New Hampshire, the president said, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we did like China and gave the death penalty to these people? So you see, intuitively, the president is with me. Okay? For the record, the president's opinion is my opinion. But if we remain silent and allow the swamp to fester around him, he will go along with them. That is the enduring lesson of this presidency on many other issues. So with us today is a person who should have starred in that ad. Her name is Virginia Krieger. Virginia is heading up a component of angel moms that people haven't thought about before. Unlike most people we have on the show, her daughter was not killed by an illegal alien drunk driver, but she was killed by fentanyl, which to be clear is coming from our lack of immigration enforcement. 2015, she had a beautiful daughter. She, um... This very talented, talented musician was on American Idol, a couple of rounds, and she had terrible pain. We have the government insurance cartel monopoly that prevented proper treatment. And then because of the so-called misdiagnosed opioid crisis, she was denied pain medication, gotten with the wrong crowd, and got a hold of heroin, which was laced with fentanyl. And died February 2nd, 2015, almost exactly to this date, five years ago. 
And there are so many people like that that came from wholesome families. Um, She was in Ohio. Like New Hampshire was a very hard-hit state. Who is speaking for those voices? Well, today we're going to have the voice herself speak to us. Um, Virginia Krieger, again, an angel mom family in Ohio, is going to tell over the story of her daughter and some of her findings on policy and politics in Ohio that she believes is causing this problem and not being addressed. With no further ado, it's truly an honor to bring Virginia on the program. Hey, Virginia, thanks for joining us and thanks for listening to me rambling. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I can't thank you enough for um, recognizing the problem and finally bringing it forward. Um, it, it means the world to me. Sure. And, and, and look, it means the world to me to actually promote something that is of value and not empty calories just to get a paycheck here. Um, I wanted to start out with Tiffany's story. Tiffany, your daughter, um, she was 26. She already had two kids at the time of her death. Typically, we think of this sort of problem with, you know, troubled families, at least historically, and then to the extent it happens with more middle, upper class families, upper income families, suburban families, well, you know, it's more like they had a troubled um, background or they were going through a rough period, depression, which certainly there is a lot of that going on. But it seems like your daughter was a victim of something very different. So is it correct to assume she was not going through a period of depression when she got in with with these people that gave her the fentanyl? Um, Not at all. Um, Tiffany was um, a very uh, bright, talented, um, exceptional, um, young woman. She, um, had, she was a cheerleader in high school, a student leader, and she was also a community activist. Um, she had put together the yellow ribbon campaign for our military that was activated after nine 11. And, uh, and she worked with, um, you know, mother uh, students against drunk driving. And she was also, active in uh, working with the uh, disabled in our community. Um, she graduated high school a year early, um, and her, her goal was to pursue a degree in um, music education. Um, she really wanted to be able to share um, her, her music, and so she was an artist and a composer, and um, she had won numerous competitions growing up as a child uh, for her vocal ability and her compositions. Um, she did make the semifinals for American Idol twice, the first time at only 16. Um, and she was just um, the all-American girl next door. And that she, she had a very amazing life in front of her. Um, she wanted to take a year off of school and we were living in Massachusetts at the time. And uh, she came back and visited relatives in Ohio and, and just really wanted to just take a little time off. And, um, you know, that's kind of where things started to go sideways. She um, stayed in Ohio and, um, you know, she did meet someone and they were in a relationship. And, you know, five years later, she's um, still 
not, she's getting ready to go back to school and finish her degree. And um, now we have a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, my grandchildren. And she was actually delivering um, baby clothes to a friend who, you know, they were unfortunate and they didn't have much. And so she gathered up some of the baby clothes she had and she was taking them over there. And their home was in poor condition. And when she walked on the porch, the porch gave way. Um, she weighed only about 109 pounds, but the porch gave way and she fell through the porch. When she did that, um, she herniated three discs in her lumbar spine. So we, 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 did, we followed all the steps that you should. She was in treatment. And um, that's about the time that the news of the quote-unquote opioid epidemic broke. And immediately, the first round of attacks were directed towards physicians. Um, oh, those physicians, they, they're the ones who caused this. And uh, so what happened was they passed legislature that not only dictated patient care, but actually dictated the amount of medication and for what conditions they could prescribe. And it was, you know, the physicians were being criminalized. And so in fear, many of them just slammed the doors. They told their patients, even patients who'd been there for years, you know, we're no longer prescribing anything at all. Um, you have to go to the pain clinics. Well, that was fine, except the pain clinics were in no way prepared for this massive influx of patients. And so now we have people who aren't being treated, who have valid medical conditions, who are being made to wait, you know, in Tiffany's case, eight weeks before anyone could see her. Um, and meanwhile, she's in, in severe pain. And there's just nothing for her. The emergency rooms aren't doing anything because the neurosurgeon and the pain clinic appointment are pending. So um, a friend of hers said, oh, well, you know, we can, get, we can get you something, you know, that's the same thing. And so she listened to this person and they obtained um, what turned out to be counterfeit pills that were actually heroin laced with fentanyl pressed into a pill. Um, well, um, Virginia, just just uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Just want to get something clear. So this was it wasn't powder; it was a pill, and that's very important because I mean this is what DEA tells me all the time. You could have people that grow up in a way they know what drugs are, like they'll never touch it. Um, but this, it you know, it's a pill. It and 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 now a lot of you know five years later, a lot of people know about this. But in 2015. Hey, look, I'm in a lot of pain. Government is screwing me over. Here's a pill. Makes a lot of sense. So you're saying at that point, it's not like she was going through depression, gotten in general with the wrong crowd, was seeking a buzz or something. You're saying that it wasn't any of that. No, no. And, you know, what's interesting, and I try to educate people about this, is that that image that you have of the cliche back alley guy in a, in, a, in a dirty army jacket, you know, shooting up with a rubber band around his arm. That's not the face of what this is. Yeah. Um, these, this, these things can be, they, they come in pill form. They can, they come in powder form. They can be snorted. They can be ingested. They, and then, and yes, there are people can inject them, but, um, for the most part, um, you know, the type, the waves, and the methods of transference, and in the case of illicit fentanyl, it can even be absorbed through the skin. Yep. So, so, so to be clear, th th this is not an addiction problem here. You know, so government solution again is to say it's all coming from the pain medication. So let's ban that, which, as we're going to see, is the ultimate counterintuitive 
uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, but let's fund drug treatment and all these feel-good programs, all about that. But what really this is, is a chemical warfare, very subtle poisoning that especially young folks, I mean, they make one mistake and it gets them dead. And that seems to be the much more pervasive story than what you're you're hearing about. Right, exactly. And and it's incredible to me that, and, and I was just speaking with someone last night, I have a 92-year-old grandmother who fell and broke her hip. Um, she goes to the emergency room, and of course she needs a hip replacement surgery, and they want to give her t- over-the-counter Tylenol for her pain. This is how severe that it's gotten. Um, and meanwhile, you know, and, and, and as an example, in 2017, 2,875 people died of overdoses. Of those 2,875 people, only 543 were prescription-related. Yep, and, and the prescriptions, as we spoke about yesterday, most of those are diversions by drug addicts who are trafficking, trafficking prescription-type drugs on the illicit market, not people um, that had, had a valid prescription uh, we spoke about yesterday just for, for our audience. We, we talked a lot on the phone yesterday with Virginia. And, and one of the things I mentioned was an article of mine where um, in a, a Massachusetts study showed that just 1.7% um, had valid prescriptions. So it was even even less than the 10%. And even among the 1.7%, there's a lot, of, a lot of that, again, were often drug addicts. The people who actually overdose um, from legitimate of prescriptions, uh, unless they have some sort of mental or, or emotional problems that that are they're anyway also maybe also taking heroin is remarkably low. And the only way you're gonna actually make that worse is in Tiffany's case here by taking those people that really do need pain medication and shutting it off from them. Then you're gonna have some problems. So so Virginia, tell tell us ultimately what happened. Well, um, ultimately, um, so she, she takes this medication and, um, while she lay dying, the two females with her, one of which had a lengthy criminal record, um, for not only for, uh, minor possession charges, but other crimes, um, including trafficking, um, they stole her bank card and they spent the next eight hours going back and forth to two separate ATMs robbing every penny out of her bank account, even returning after the coroner had come and removed my child's lifeless body from the home. Um, Ultimately, there were no criminal charges. Um, I ended up having to investigate myself the uh, theft uh, just to even have that prosecuted. And I presented the case to the prosecutor myself. Um, In the end, one of the two females served 30 days for petty theft and the other one was never charged at all. However, the second one, who was the really the worst of the two, went on to be present for two other um, overdose deaths. Mm. She was resuscitated herself with Narcan and um, then went on to, now she's in prison for um, robbery while the resident was home. Wait, robbery? Wait, wait, you mean to tell me, dr- wait, you mean to tell me rug- drug traffickers are violent? Oh, exactly. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so again, again, so, so, so to sum up here, um, 
man, I can't breathe. I'm so angry. Um, basically, doctors are criminals. Um, government through Medicare, Medicaid, and then also basically they're controlled over the insurance companies because it's one big oligarchy there. They control the the free flow of, of healthcare in America. We don't have healthcare freedom. So they screw that up. Then, so they're criminalized, but drug traffickers are celebrated. I mean, folks, everywhere you go on a federal level, Republicans did two things, two things when they had trifecta control of Congress, tax cuts and letting out the worst gangbanger federal drug traffickers targeted by U.S. attorneys because the almost all of them have lengthy uh, records, not just of drug trafficking, but as we see, robbery, all sorts of things at a state level and escape justice. And we let them go. We run ads on them. We champion them. We make them like God. And people like Tiffany, I mean, and, and, and Virginia, her family were victims three times over of government policies. So, Virginia, bear with me here. You're in Ohio. The last time I checked, Bernie Sanders is not governor, nor do, is Bernie Sanders types controlling the legislature. You have a Republican governor, and you've had one for quite some time, um, and you have pretty solid majorities for quite some time in the House and Senate there. Um, but yet, what I hear out of Ohio, which is so many Republican states as well, this obsession with decriminalizing drug trafficking. That's correct. In fact, we had a bill um, that tried to cut past through last year, issue one, that we were able to soundly defeat that would have literally made um, possession of major drug trafficking amounts up to 50 units of of fentanyl, specifically uh, a misdemeanor. And just to be clear, just so everyone understands, um, how deadly fentanyl this and it, when you hear the word fentanyl we're not talking about prescription fentanyl and i just want to clarify that we're yeah. talking about illicit fentanyl that is coming in from both china and is now also being manufactured in mexico when you hear about opioid epidemic and you hear of heroin 91.6 percent of that is coming from mexico it's not afghanistan Yep. Mexico is home to the third largest poppy fields in the entire world, and they are right next. Yep, and 100% of the meth is coming from there, and 100% of the cocaine is coming from Colombia, but it's now being trafficked by the Mexican cartels even more so than the Colombian cartels. So, yeah, go on. That's correct. So, um, and now, uh, to make it worse, um, we have sanctuary city policies that are harboring and protecting um, these cartel members. And um, so just to get back to the policy, on currently in the Senate is Senate Bill 3, which would, they, they presented it under the guise of wanting to help um, people who suffer from substance abuse disorder. And uh, so it would decriminalize small possession amounts. And, and and we already have a system called drug court where these folks can go. Oh, yeah. You know, first, second, even third offenses. Oh, yeah. They'll try to get them rehab and treatment over, you know, a criminal record. Yeah. This notion that law enforcement has the time or desire to go after so-called nonviolent low level. But what it does do is when you decriminalize all possession, see, sometimes 
they have really bad traffickers who, again, are also Latin kings, gangbangers. They're murdering, they're robbing, they're doing all sorts of stuff. So sometimes they need that as a prosecutorial tool to get them. So, so that's what happens when you take possession off the table. But yeah. Right. And so this uh, SB3 bill didn't just address uh, minor level things, which we don't need a new law to address. So it can be handled through the drug court. Um, but what it also does is, again, goes after uh, reducing the um, penalties for major possessions, including fenton- illicit fentanyl. And, um, and what will happen is that the cartels adjust when these laws are passed. They make sure that, you know, they're only carrying, you know, X amount so that they cannot fall into those larger penalty zones. And so all that means is that they have runners to transport for them, but they always adapt. And so, you know, I've come out very vocally against SB3 um, because, you know, we need to be locking these people up, these major traffickers, not giving them a way around the system. And that's what's been happening so far. It's mentally ill, Virginia. I I just don't know what to say. I've never seen anything this perverse in my entire life. Like, it, it would be one thing if they ignored the drug crisis. They just didn't talk about it. But I'm telling you, all they do in Ohio is talk about it at a state level. At a federal level, they passed 60 pieces of legislation last year dealing with the opioid crisis, and all of it was about just handing out a bunch of uh, taxpayer funding to these rent-seeking NGOs, treating drug addiction and all that nonsense, which only fuels it more, actually, um, and then further regulating the heck out of medicine, which in your case was the impetus for her death, um, and then so and then let out all the drug traffickers. And then there's the final leg of this perverted evil stool, and that's <clears throat> the border and sanctuary. So for our listeners, if you could explain, you call yourself an angel mom. And, you know, some people might be a little bit confused. They expect to hear a story of, you know, directly someone killed by an illegal alien. Obviously, those two girls, women that um, screwed her over in the case of Tiffany they, they were not illegal immigrants. So why do you consider yourself an angel mom? And could you explain the immigration angle here, the legal immigration angle? Yes. Um, well, I actually met with Marianne Mendoza, who's the founder of Angel Families um, across the board. And um, that was a year ago in February. I went to a town hall by We Build the Wall in Cincinnati. And everyone was talking about um, illegal immigrants who have killed or either by murder or accidental death, um, you know, victims in the United States. But nobody was talking about the cartel drugs that are being brought in by illegal alien gang members. Yeah. You know, a hundred times more people. uh, And and that's not even exaggerating. Um, And Marianne immediately, you know, recognized that any. 85% 85% of the drugs coming into the country are doing so over the U.S.-Mexican border. The cartels are now in every single city, state, and county in the United States, and they're operating with impunity. Um, the drugs that claimed Tiffany's life were Mexican in origin. 91.6% of all the heroin in the United States is Mexican. The illicit fentanyl is coming through Mexico. And so, yes, um, all these families who have lost their loved ones because of these illicit drugs can point their fingers directly to one source, and those are mainly the cartels. Um, Even the uh, law enforcement officers and 
the members of Homeland Security that I've spoken to um, and local police, they're not busting little meth labs in the United States anymore. The cartels have completely taken that over. Um, these are all cartel yep. connections. The Sinaloa cartel, uh, specifically, we talk about CJNG, uh, but the Sinaloa cartel has actually got a much more diffuse presence in the U.S. They're the number one cartel in the world. And um, it, it is frankly terrifying to me that not only are they here trafficking in their drugs, but we're starting to see the rise of the same level of brutality um, and crimes that are being committed in Mexico that people are running from. Yep. It's only a matter of time before we have that same environment here in our own communities and our children are being exposed to that. Um, now, um, because of the, we had a complete change um, in the base of these, of people who are affected by these opioids, as you mentioned, and it's very true, there are no social boundaries. If your child is in a, in a private school, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor you are. Um, it doesn't matter how well you raise your child. Uh, these things are there, and it only takes one time, mm. one mistake, one sidestep, one moment in time where they make one bad choice, yep. and they're gone. And then we have, in, as, as in my case, in Ohio in 2018, over 14,000 children entered into the foster care system after having lost one or both parents um, or being victims of neglect due to drug abuse. And those numbers, I, I can assure you, are much lower uh, because, you know, we don't have accurate tracking. We don't have accurate tracking of even the overdose deaths as as in your article that we you know that you mentioned in 2016 we lost 142,000 people that's more than twice the amount that was reported by the CDC and I still feel that number may be low uh, so we've seen continued rise and and there is no there is doesn't appear to be a stopping point at this at this moment and now we have sanctuary cities that are protecting and turning these Cartel people, they're, they're actually getting a free pass to operate with impunity. I did a um, recent study uh, myself just on Ohio. Uh, Ohio was number one in 2017 for overdose deaths. Um, and what I discovered was that um, two-thirds of the overdose deaths due to fentanyl, illicit fentanyl in Ohio, occurred in sanctuary cities. When I compared... Um, <clears throat> these cities against and others of the same demographic uh, makeup and population sizes, what I discovered is that they were still two times higher um, in their escalation rate than the non-sanctuary areas. So just by looking at the data, it tells us that these areas are a problem. You know, I, I have the data in front of me, folks, and maybe, you know, I think one day I'm just going to publish it um, in uh, in Virginia's name, I'm actually looking at this. So yeah, you look at the raw numbers. So you know, obviously Cuyahoga, aka Cleveland, and Franklin, aka Columbus. You know, just the population is the largest, so you expect the largest numbers. That doesn't tell the story. But what what you looked at was okay. 2015 was bad. 2017 was the worst. You looked at the increase, the change, the the increase in percentage, and that I thought was very telling. Yeah, you'll have the the biggest numbers in the big urban areas, but who's to say you'll 
you'll have uh, the biggest percentage change. And I found that amazing that uh, you you showed sanctuary, non-sanctuary cities. They all went up counties, but, um, you know, they uh, they were sometimes only minimal or 60 percent. And then you look, it's just jarring. The three biggest ones, Cuyahoga, which is Cleveland, 371 percent increase. Um, Franklin, which is Columbia, 285 percent increase. Um, help me out here. What's Montgomery? Is that Cincinnati? Dayton. Okay. Um, that is Dayton. So that, I didn't know that was a sanctuary. Wow. Um, so 334% increase. The largest increases were by far were in sanctuaries is fascinating. And as we noted before, it's because anyone caught in, in those jurisdictions for drugs. So it's a, it's a convergence of the jailbreak agenda and the sanctuary agenda. They view immigration, illegal immigration as a low level crime. Actually, they view it as a virtue <laughs> um, and they view drug trafficking as a low level crime. So you put the two together, they're all released. Whenever you hear sanctuary cities, think drugs. That's what it is. That is the most common offense that the illegal aliens are arrested for. They, they're certainly the drunk driving, other things, straight up homicide, but that is the biggest problem. And whereas with Americans, as we noted, they barely get locked up. They're going to be out. All of these people, and that constitutes the primary level of drug trafficking. Every DEA uh, special agent in charge of a given area has told me that, and that they cannot remember. This is uh, almost a full quote from Robert Murphy, the DEA SAC in Atlanta. I, I cannot remember the last time at a top trafficking level that the people I didn't arrest were not overwhelmingly um, uh, illegal immigrants, uh, particularly from Mexico and Colombia. And that's that's it. That that's right there. I, I mean, if you if you want to talk about the drug crisis, it's an external problem. Now, once it gets in here, a lot of people get involved in the trafficking. But at a top level, getting it in, it is fundamentally a sovereignty borders sanctuary problem. What I find shocking, Virginia, is we're talking about Ohio again. How in God's name do you have all three branches of government under GOP control, a GOP governor, GOP attorney general, and you have every major city in Ohio is a sanctuary? Exactly. And that we have eight, eight cities in Columbus, which is our capital, is an unofficial. Um, they haven't officially said that they're a sanctuary city yet they're not cooperating with ICE. So to me, you might as well announce it because that's what you're doing. Um, and so that's what was the premise behind me forming parents against illicit narcotics and starting to push back because I'm seeing, you know, that first they attack the positions and then, you know, they went after big pharma and, and, and while I agree that that big pharma was irresponsible, by not alerting people when they understood the addictive qualities of these opioid medications. Sure. The main driving force. No, not by a long shot. Not by, it's, 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 it's a, in the cartels. it's an infin, infinitesimal. It really is. It really is. Look, they are potent stuff. I'll, I'll be the first to tell you for the, uh, for the first time in my life, I, I had them for a week um, when I had a kidney stone and Percocet. To me, it's awful. I couldn't function with it. But look, I mean, millions of people, I hear from so many people online, they say that they are able to function and this is the only way they're able to function. And um, and in your case, obviously, it was the most counterintuitive thing. 
wanted to just um, mention another thing, and I'm not sure how much you re- you've researched this, but you have sanctuary cities, which are often urban, but then you have sanctuary agricultural interests that import them, and they have so much political sway, we don't do anything about it. So what happens is a- AP, and it was really the Louisville Courier, did a, a great expose on CJNG and how they penetrate rural communities in Kentucky with their drug trafficking networks. And they, they, they note, quote, the cartel exploits its connections with otherwise hardworking immigrants. Of course, they don't mention they're illegals. And that's how they blend in the drug trafficking in rural areas, because typically you wouldn't have them there, but you have them as the day laborers. And then once they're there, they serve as that conduit um, to, quote, use local traffickers who can blend in to sell their drugs. And that's how it gets into the cities and Americans start trafficking it. Uh, what Attorney General uh, Steve Marshall from Al- Alabama, he's the Alabama Attorney General, General, he told me the way that the structure of those organizations work is typically those with the connection back across the border are at the highest level. And then there are local people individually to help them in the distribution. So is that what you found in, in your research on Ohio? Yes, I did. And actually, um, that's why they've been so effective. Um, and I had shared with you quite a few news articles from Ohio. And that's the other thing. This doesn't hit um, you know, mainstream media, of course, because it, it kind of bashes the narrative about open borders and illegal immigrants aren't committing crimes. And, um, but yes, that's exactly what is going on here. They've infiltrated into these areas. And the other thing I found in, we were looking for what happened that there was this sudden change in 2013, because if you look at the data for overdose deaths, they remained essentially static and then they started to slowly go up, which, you could account for that based on just population increases and um, various economic factors. But suddenly and out of nowhere, we just see this sudden spike of over 900%. Yep. Out of, and it just, it just. I actually have that. I have that tracked on a chart. It's 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 remarkable. They talk about it and and as if it they start talking about the '90s, but yeah, it was a baseline increase. Which the way I understand it is, look, I mean, it's a potent stuff. You know what else is potent? An automobile. And with the rise of automobiles, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. I mean, yeah, accidents really did go up. But I mean, it's not a rip on the fundamentals of that. Are there things we could do to have better highway safety? And we have improved on things. And likewise here, you could do that, but yeah, it was, it went up, but then it went bonkers. And and here's the irony, Virginia, when it went bonkers, 2014, 2015, 2016, that was several years after prescriptions had already been choked off. Um, the, the dosages, the number of prescriptions, um, the, the prescription prescriptions peaked in 2008 in most states, T- kind of leveled out 2010, and then it went down and then started. So the whole narrative is a delayed reaction. It drives me nuts. It, it, it's the same thing there, there with the prison population. Um, oh, there's too many people in prison. We need to let more out. I'm like, dude, that peaked again, actually around the same time. And since then, they've been letting them out. You're, and, and actually, crime is now going up again. You're, you're missing the boat. 
Um, I found that to be an astounding, astounding data point that it, it, it's not just that they're wrong. It's 100% the opposite. Prescriptions had already been choked back long before the deaths rose. Why? Because the deaths were all because of the lacing of fentanyl. And then as time as 2016 merged into 2017, 2018, then it became a lot about meth and cocaine, which has nothing to do with pain medication and depressants because it's a psychostimulant. So, um, so yeah, I mean, but, but, but sorry to cut you off there. No, that's fine. And so what I started doing is, you know, I'm going through, and, and mind you, before all this happened, you know, this, I, I, I knew nothing. And then over five years, I've become, I call myself an unwilling expert on the topic because I wanted to know what happened to my child and how it happened. Um, and so I started looking at what major factors changed in the U.S. around the time that these deaths spiked. And I only found one major change that happened in the United States. And that major change was, change was undocumented uh, minors, unaccompanied minors. They started flooding our borders. 2014, and yeah. They started bringing them in. And what a lot of people don't understand is that among these undocumented minors, there were a lot, and I do mean a lot, of cartel members. Um, and and they, gang members. And they start them as young as 11. So these are children who already, you know, are, are, are actively working for the cartels. And... Through their little foot soldiers, they've been able to, you know, really establish their footprint in the United States. And um, and that's why I talk about how important it is that we are vetting everyone who comes in the country because there are so many of them that hide very effectively in and amongst the migrants. Yep. And, and they get here and, and they have no intention of becoming, you know, productive citizens when they get here. They have only one goal. And that is to poison our children and make as much money off of their suffering as humanly possible. Yep, as Tom Tom Homan, former ICE director, says, forty percent of those that they catch in various MS thirteen stings came here as UACs. And MS thirteen, um, everyone's familiar with the gruesome violence, but with that is the is the drug trafficking, as is with most gangs. Because that is the mother's milk of revenue. I mean, that's any any organized crime now subsists. Even terrorism is very much tied into the drug trade. So um, wherever you see the growth of MS-13, and, and that that we have documented, because MS-13 also it took off when right around 2014. You did not hear about it. You heard about it in the 90s a lot, um, and then in the next decade when the 287G program and secure communities came into place and they actually started getting them out, we busted them up by 2008, 2010. You almost never heard of them. Um, and then the last few years we've been hearing of them, not coincidentally is the same time this opioid crisis suddenly came about, um, suddenly just, just happened. Um, and then of course, as you mentioned, you know, even without the legal immigration, but it's certainly aggravated by the the domestic uh, dismantling of criminal justice in America. So it's a double whammy. It's a triple whammy with the clamping down on prescriptions. And you know, the thing is, I'm glad you talked about the UACs because what what the what the cartels have doing been doing for ages, whether it's human smuggling, there's actually a term for them, um, the coyotes who are kids, and I'm forgetting the Spanish word. Maybe you know it. It's it's uh, politas. It's it's something 
I don't know Spanish, but anyway, yeah, but but you know what I mean, and 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 they know that we, yeah, they do nothing to minors. They know that in our criminal system. So the sheriffs, like Sheriff Mark Daniels of Cochise County, Arizona, Leon Wool, um, uh, Wilmot of uh, Pima County, he's been on the show too. They all say that's the big problem. The cartels recruit minors because they know our justice system will do nothing about it. The feds can and will not do anything about it. So so in his jurisdiction, um, Cochise County, they go after them, but he's a good sheriff. Um, you know, so many, the majority of counties in America follow the feds lead on that and they do nothing at a state level either. Hence, it's the it's the worst nightmare right and and i call it the perfect storm because three factors came together we had first of all we had the legislating against um pain patients and and medical treatment then we had you know the the decriminalization of drug trafficking and possession and then we had the flood of the cartels crashing the border and all three came together and so now you have, and there are a whole lot of valid pain patients out there who were forced out of their doctor's offices um, and onto the street to treat their pain. And, and um, I've had uh, three spinal cord surgeries myself, and, and it, there was a point in time where I myself had needed medication while recovering. And I can tell you that I empathize so deeply with all of these poor people who are now, they're being treated like, you know, they're drug addicts and criminals, and, and, and they aren't. And, you know, the cartels, they're operating still with impunity, and now, in many cases, under protected status that is even higher than that of American citizens. Every single ounce of effort on the part of both parties is geared towards criminals, particularly drug traffickers there is no almost nobody in politics today standing up for the victims of crime and then on the immigration side it's it's a little bit more subtle republicans officially are are tougher only because of trump's rhetoric so they can't kind of defy him but privately they are all in with the chamber of commerce special interests um the agricultural interests which really serve as one of the biggest conduits for all of this and uh, just today, I mean, it was amazing. I just saw an article, um, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, who's really been strong on this pushing E-Verify. But, you know, the Republicans in the legislature, they're balked and they, they forced a carve out for agriculture, which is really the 800 pound gorilla in the room there for E-Verify and uh, legal aliens working. Um, you know, in 1986, Reagan really, and, and Ed Meese, his attorney general, who's still alive, he talks about this all the time. It was a very painful concession. He gave amnesty to two and a half million illegal aliens under the promise that we would finally end it and have employer sanctions and make it that it's illegal for them to work. Yet here we are where states are now criminalizing enforcement of that and downright giving them driver's licenses, licenses openly so they can go to jobs. They said that in New York. And their part of the deal got upheld. Ours has not. We don't matter in this country. We don't matter if you're not a criminal, if you're not an illegal alien, if you're not a special interest. If you're just an ordinary, plain American of any creed or race that just wants to be left alone by government regulation and intervention, 
but wants government to focus on security and sovereignty and safe communities, screw us. We don't have a voice. Um, We thought we had a voice, and I still think that the president means what he says deep down, but it needs guidance and it needs focus and it needs a unanimity of of movement behind it uh, without distractions. And that's something we, we certainly don't have. Virginia, we're out of time. I need to have you on again. Any closing words? Could you talk a little bit about um, this Parents Against Illicit Networks, Illicit Narcotics? Yes, um, I started Parents Against Illicit Narcotics. It's a newly formed nonprofit organization to deal with just these issues um, so that we can start um, with the, it's formed by victims and families for victims and families so that we can push back against these policies that are harming our communities. Um, we're going to be providing support to the local rehab efforts that where the money rears down to. Um, you know, when you hear all these big uh, spending grants that occur, very little of that actually makes its way down to the, the people on the ground and doing the work. And so we want to try to help fundraise and support these, these efforts in the communities. But at the same time, we want to address the cartel issue, which has been largely ignored. Um, so um, in, in parting, I would just like to say to everyone listening that this is an isolated problem. It's not something that you can just say, well, you know, let them go and, and you know, whatever happens to them, that's their fault. You know, they, they, they kind of deserve what they get. We're out of that realm now. We're yeah. the, the, the complete paradigm of who these people are and how they're coming across these substances is no longer anything that we that we're used to. And as I said before, that only one time, one mistake in in a young teenager who's just experimenting with life, and now it could end their life. And and that has to be a full stop for anyone. So, you know, when you hear about legislating coming up for illicit fentanyl, we, that totally has to be, um, either, in my opinion, banned altogether. But if we're going to have clinical use, we need to have it under the most, the strictest regulations humanly possible. And we need to get rid of the cartels, period. Yep. And the president was willing to designate them as, as terrorists, meaning focus our national security and intelligence apparatus against them with the same rigor we do Islamic terrorists, when again, you know, that's mainly overseas and we bring them in through immigration, just like we bring the cartels through immigration. Um, the president was willing to do it, but we didn't have a focused movement. It was all about the soap opera on all the Fox News shows. So therefore, the swamp that's inherent in all these agencies won out. And the president backed down and that was a loss. But we need to fight again another day. I know um, Chip Roy uh, certainly... Congressman from Texas would be happy to hear from you. I have to put you in touch with him. Where do people get a hold of you um, if they have a similar story or want to get involved? Uh, we have um, we have a website that's going live on March first. That's um, at p a i n dot us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, there's uh, Parents Against Illicit Narcotics is on Twitter. We're also on Facebook. Uh, so you can reach out to me in any one of those areas, and you will find me. I also have my own Twitter account, Angel Mom Virginia Krieger, um, and that's uh, K R I E G E R. And um, you know, and I'm just here to let all the families and victims who have suffered because of this epidemic that 
we're here and and you're welcome welcome to come and join us or if you just need support we're here for you perfect and and folks you could find me as well if you have a story to to share you want to pass something on to virginia uh, dharowitz at blazemedia.com my twitter at rm conservative thank you so much virginia and may god console you and your family on your terrible loss and may god give us all guidance in actually dealing with some of the most pressing issues and and staying focused and staying principled when it actually matters till tomorrow god bless y'all and thanks for listening